Welcome to the Clipping Chains podcast from ClippingChains.com, where we are funding the adventurous life. This is your host, Chad Andrews, and hi, how are you? Good Monday morning, and I want to welcome you to episode 46, I believe. I believe that's where we are at. And today we are going to investigate the 4% rule and whether this actually is a strategy for a very long early retirement horizon. Just as a real quick background, the 4% rule essentially says that we can live off no more than 4% of our portfolio each year. And if we do that, we should never run out of money. And it almost doesn't matter how long our retirement is. Is that true? So we will take a look at that today. I want to say right up front that this is a written post on the website as well today. And I, in particular, am quite the visual learner. I like charts. I like graphs. And so all that's there with all these words. And so if you are more of a visual learner, head on over there. I'd recommend it even if you do want to just listen to this podcast. Number two, don't get overwhelmed. I think a lot of this stuff kind of gets in the technical weeds. A lot of you guys aren't even in a position where you'd even be considering living off investment income. You're saving, you're investing. But hey, listen to this anyway. Start to get an idea of what this is going to look like if you are serious about financial independence and especially if you are serious about early retirement, you'll want to know how this works before you show up there and have to start from square one. The next point I'll make is that these scenarios are theoretical. And I know this post in particular kind of takes a little bit of a cautionary tone. And I don't want to sound too negative about things because we are talking about theoretical situations in which somebody would be living off investment income for many decades, like 60 years without making any income at all. How realistic is that? I'd say probably not very realistic, okay? Again, these are really scenarios for true early retirees, and we'll talk about whether that's even the right approach for most people, okay? Before we head into it, as usual, I always appreciate ratings and reviews on Apple and Spotify. And let's head right into this, guys. We will discuss today the 4% rule and whether this is the right approach for early retirees. Okay, thanks. Okay, so the 4% rule. We've all heard about it. If you're into financial independence at all, you've heard about this concept of the 4% rule. Well, what is it? It's a rule that suggests that a retiree who withdraws no more than 4% of their portfolio each year could provide for a retirement window during most historical retirement windows. So if you analyze over any sort of historical retirement window, let's just say you retired at the eve of the Great Depression, how would your portfolio have lasted based on various withdrawal rates. And it's shown that at least over a 30-year retirement window, the 4% rule was the kind of floor. It was the safe withdrawal rate. If you retired on the eve of maybe a big bull market run, you could have withdrawn upwards of 5, 6, 7, 8% and lasted 30 years, right? This is, this is from the Trinity study, which analyzed 30-year retirement windows. Okay, that's all true. The problem is that the FIRE community, however, makes at least two glaring omissions when discussing the 4% rule, okay? So today we address some common misconceptions about utilizing investment income, and most importantly, we are going to discuss how to use a flexible withdrawal strategy to weather bear markets and or reduced 
future returns. Okay. Let's start with some misconceptions about the 4% rule. These are the two I see most often when reading other bloggers and fire kind of commentators is that number one, folks extend this Trinity study, this 30-year retirement window to much longer retirement horizons. And that might be up to 60 or even 70 years. You know, people are actually retiring for real with, you know, 25 times their annual spending in their late 20s. So they might be looking at perhaps a 70-year retirement horizon, right? While it's true that the asymptotic relationship of withdrawal rates doesn't change the outcome substantially, it is, however, risky to extend the 4% withdrawal rate to retirement horizons greater than 30 years. And we'll talk about that. Number two, a lot of folks don't understand the mechanics of the 4% rule and they believe they should withdraw a flat 4% withdrawal from their portfolio each year, no matter what's going on. So in a raging bull market, that sounds great. Like, you know, maybe in the last few years, we had 30% returns. That's awesome. Now I can increase my spending by 30%. The downside, however, is if your portfolio falls by 30%, you must cut your spending in stride. So a lot of fire adherents will shrug this off and claim they are flexible, right? You hear this all the time. Well, I can be flexible. However, I suspect that few are flexible enough to weather reduced share values for many years or even decades. It's real. That's happened in the past. So let's first talk more about flexibility. You know, when my wife and I began our ambitions for financial independence, and especially when I began to relate that I might actually quit my job, I was asked some variation of a very common question, and it's a good question. And folks would say something along the lines of, sure, I can see you making money in the stock market. That makes sense. I understand that, right? I mean, buy stocks and they go up. Sure, I get it. But you're going to leave your job and you've built your whole nest egg based on this premise. So what about when the market inevitably falls and you've already quit your job? Now, I think this is a surprisingly great question. It's also a question that a lot of fire enthusiasts often and perhaps smugly shrug off as some sort of non-concern. Again, they always say, well, I can be flexible. You know, and when asked, many will simply point at the 4% rule as defined by the Trinity study, right? And this is a study that I would suggest that most people have not read, but actually blindly accept as gospel. We just assume that, you know, some people on the internet said the 4% rule. It just begins circulating on every other fire blog because someone read this study and the rest of us are, are regurgitating it out there on the internet and we all just kind of accept it as truth. And folks will say something along the lines of, hey, you know, so long as I only spend 4% of my portfolio each year, I can't run out of money. Now, this statement is really piled high with assumptions, okay? Like, for instance, what kind of asset allocation do you have? The 4% rule does have an assumed asset allocation. How long is your retirement horizon? If you're talking about 20 years, that's very different from 60 years. Some will say it's not, but it is. How much spending flexibility do you really have? Could you be flexible potentially for decades, decades? Can you really go back to work once your skills are eight years dated in a rapidly evolving workplace? How is your timing, i.e. how is your luck, basically? Are you retiring at the start or end of a bull market? Very important. Now, all of this matters tremendously. It really does. And we have to first begin with this recency bias. I mean, the whole reason this FIRE movement exists and as popular as it is, I 100% believe is because we're just coming out of this great bull market. 
the best bull market the, the world's basically ever seen, at least in the U.S. And that lasted from the end of the Great Recession, which kind of began building early 2009 and lasted until uh, the COVID lockdowns and everything in 2020, but kind of kicked back up again through late 2021 with some really good returns in the second half of 2020 and pretty much all of 2021. So we have all, all of us been conditioned by the last 11 to 12 years to expect not only positive market returns, but consistently positive returns. We've gotten used to it. We've really gotten used to it. So since 2008, the S&P 500 has provided 11 out of 13 years of positive returns. And not just like slightly positive, but like crushing, like 10 plus percent year after year, some years up in the range of 30%. And there were negative yearly returns only in 2015 and 2018. And of course, barring some sort of miracle, 2022 will be the third and most prominent year of negative returns. So that's kind of a bummer, right? Not really. I mean, like, obviously it helped us all. It helped me build wealth. It hopefully helped you build wealth. It's been good. And that's just how the cycle continues, right? This always happens. Let's first consider fixed withdrawals. So if someone reached financial independence and they want to start living off this income they've saved, a lot of folks will just have a fixed withdrawal strategy. The downside is if the market is down, so is your spending. So let's just say the salad days of the last bull market are now behind us and that we are expecting either reduced returns or just some sort of environment coming forward here in the future where we're just not going to have the returns we had from, say, 2009 to 2020. So how can retirees in particular react to reduced market returns? For sake of example, let's say we have a family with a yearly spending of $40,000 and they retired on December 31st, 2021. That was, by the way, right around the peak of the S&P 500 before it began its fall here in 2022. And let's just say they had a portfolio of $1 million and with an asset allocation of 100% stocks. Just keep this thing real simple. So their spending to portfolio ratio indeed satisfies the 4% rule because $40,000 is 4% of 1 million, or at least it did. At the time of writing right now, or the time I'm speaking these words, their portfolio is now worth $750,000 as the S&P 500 is down approximately 25% year to date. So for this family not to overwithdraw and thereby greatly risking their portfolio's longevity, they must cut their spending in stride by 25%. So to satisfy the 4% rule, they can now only spend $30,000 per year. Now, if the market continues falling, let's say to 50% of its previous high, just as it did in 2008 and into 2009, not that long ago, these 4% rule adherents must cut their spending further to $20,000. And this could last for years. So how many of us can spend half of what we expected for potentially years? So the question is, how flexible can we be? Now, I've seen this in the blog world many times. Some say they can uproot their life and use the power of geo-arbitrage to move to a town or even country with a lower cost of living. So if I live in a big city, like, ah, you know, it's getting expensive. The market's down. I'll move to, say, I don't know, Ecuador or Thailand or something where the cost of living is super cheap, maybe Mexico. 
and I will now have a lower cost of living and I can weather out a bear market. And a lot of people say that. But let's really examine the utility of this statement. You know, sure, I suppose I could imagine living somewhere like that for a year or two. That could be an interesting life experience, waiting out a short-lived bear market. But here's the big problem. Many bear markets are not short-lived. They're not. This is especially true if we consider the time it takes to regain previous market highs. So not just peak to trough, which can be maybe on the order of a couple of years, year and a half or so, but we're talking peak to peak, which on average is maybe five plus years. So if someone moved to, let's just say Ecuador in the year 2000, right on the cusp of the, and, and as the evolving dot-com bubble burst was happening, and they want to reduce their cost of living to avoid this bear market that they saw, you know, materializing before their very eyes, they wouldn't have returned until almost 2016. That sucks. Because you know what happened? We started climbing back out of that dot-com bubble burst, and then boom, we had the housing collapse of 2008, and we had a very severe recession, and it didn't recover its previous highs until around 2016. And so as Karsten, over at Early Retirement Now, who I really respect, has pointed out, a retiree who pulled the plug in 1966, which is widely considered to be probably the most unluckiest retirement cohort out there, the 1966 cohort, would have had to wait 28 years, 28 years to regain previous highs after years of shellacking in the 70s and early 80s. That was not a good time to retire. As you may know, the 70s were marked by a period of very high inflation, not so unlike what we are seeing today but also really crappy market returns that lasted into the early 80s. And for 11 of those years, they would have had to have withdrawals 40% or more below their initial spending levels. So can you imagine living in a depressed spending environment for 28 years where 11 of those, you have to have withdrawals of nearly 50% your original? That's tough. Okay, so how flexible can we be? Now, this dilemma is complicated further still by someone engaging in what I've always kind of called unsustainable frugality. I mean, it's one thing to think you may never want a house, a child, car, I don't know, pesto <laughs> in your 20s, you know? You think you can live this really austere life, maybe live in a van or whatever, and thereby you start building a portfolio based on a low-spending assumption that you carry through for decades. It's another altogether to wake up five or 10 years later, resentful of a spending ceiling created by a younger version of yourself. And this is something I've tried to caution against because I've seen it in my own life. I know how I felt when I was in my 20s. I thought I could just be this super minimalist person. Well, I'm you know coming up on 40 and a lot has changed. And I like it. I like that there's a little bit more comfort and a little bit more spending in my life. But if you'd asked me in my late 20s, if that would have been the case, I'd have been, I would have said no way. Even five years ago, I might've said no way. So in years down the road, any marketable skills might now be quite stale. So the common refrain of, you know, quote unquote, I'll just go back to work, which a lot of people also say, might not be exactly cut and dry. So again, how flexible can we be? So let's look instead at a different way of thinking about things, and that's using a flexible withdrawal rate. So how can we actually modify our withdrawal rate almost any time we want to make a withdrawal, even on a monthly scale? To be more dynamic, to recognize a changing market, which is always changing, right? We know that. The market's not fixed. We don't get fixed returns. So why should we have fixed withdrawals? 
So the solutions for this dilemma of a bear market, right, of reduced returns, i.e. a reduced portfolio, are varied. And I'll quickly address a few. And these are some of the things we've thought through for years now. Number one, the most obvious, is to save more, right? Yeah, just the more you save, the less you have to withdraw off your portfolio to support your life. And so for those serious about true early retirement with a long horizon, like 30 or more years, and I mean like truly retiring, it's like not working again, I'd recommend an initial withdrawal rate in the range of 3.25 to maybe 3.5%. So that's less than the 4% rule. And this was our approach. We were aiming for an initial withdrawal rate of 3.25%. Number two, have sp- Spending flexibility. So my advice here is real simple. Don't retire on a minimalist spending profile. You know, I know it's very tempting to get there, quote unquote, as fast as possible. But remember, the grass is always greener on the other side. And I can tell you from someone looking back, I would have fixed a lot more about my life and not been in a hurry to get to this early retirement, you know, panacea as it is. Because it's not that. It's really not. And that leads me to my number three point, which is don't really retire. I really don't recommend it. I really don't. Keep supplemental income through a passion project, part-time work, rental income, something like that. Stay involved in the world. You know, this is what we do as well. So we do have income coming in. My my wife works part-time. I'm busy with this project and actually several others that have nothing to do with this. I mean, I think it's important to stay involved with things. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I really do. I think we'll all eventually come to that realization eventually. Number four, utilize a flexible withdrawal rate that acknowledges expected market returns. And you might be saying, well, what? I mean, who can predict future market returns? If we could predict future market returns, wouldn't we all be filthy rich? Like no one can predict the stock market. Well, enter the CAPE ratio. Okay, so let's now talk about this more flexible withdrawal strategy using the CAPE ratio. Now, what is the CAPE ratio? So this is a ratio created by the American economist kind of superstar, Robert Schiller. You may have heard of various Schiller indices, all this stuff. He developed this as a backward-looking evaluation using real earnings per share, that's EPS, to smooth out fluctuations in corporate profits of a moving 10-year period. I know. Stay with me. Stay with me, all right? So this CAPE ratio, otherwise known as a cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio, stay with me, (laughs) is generally applied to broad equity indices like the S&P 500 to evaluate whether the market is either overvalued or undervalued. So we're not saying that tomorrow the market will fall by 3% and then tomorrow it'll go up by 5%. It's not that kind of prediction. It's just saying looking long-term at around a 10 plus year window, we think that the stocks, equities at their current valuations are either overvalued or undervalued, right? So we can compare the current market price to its inflation-adjusted historical earnings, which is, in fact, surprisingly effective in predicting, again, these long, you know, broad equity evaluation outlooks, okay? So basically, the equation for this, I really hesitate to do equations on a podcast, but it's really simple, is the current share price of, say, the S&P 500 divided by the 10-year average inflation-adjusted earnings. So... In case your eyeballs or now ear holes are bleeding from all this mumbo jumbo and you're ready to turn this podcast off, don't do it. Let's talk in layman's terms. Here, real simple. The larger the CAPE ratio, the more we should be concerned about future market returns. 
So if the CAPE ratio is up, that is suggesting that future market returns are probably not going to be very good. And I've got a link in this original post. If you want to go look on Robert Schiller's website, he has a monthly updated CAPE ratio that's just publicly available. Pretty cool. Okay. So what is a good CAPE ratio? What, what kind of numbers are we talking here? So for a sense of scale, the historical average of the CAPE ratio is between about 15 to 16. So where are we today? Today, according to Schiller, his CAPE ratio currently is calculated at 28. Ouch. But that's down from almost 40 at the S&P 500 peak back in late 2021 in December. So in December, the market was at its high. Everybody was high-fiving and being like, man, this is awesome. But Schiller's data is saying, whoa, buddy, we are primed for a fall. And sure enough, that is what happened. Now, we are still overvalued. So someone who retires with an elevated CAPE ratio, so that's considered generally greater than 20. That would be a high CAPE ratio, something higher than 20. They should be very weary of their initial withdrawal rates. And we're at 28, even in a bear market, all right? So it's still suggesting, according to Schiller, that even in this bear market, stocks are still overvalued. So in fact, Karsten at Early Retirement Now has pointed out He's done a whole lot of modeling. I mean, guys, if you want to talk about sequence of returns, which we're about to, Karsten is your guy, not me. Go look at this incredible volume of work he's done about sequence of return risk for early retirees. He has noted that all the failures of the 4% rule, any model failure of that withdrawal strategy occurred when the initial CAPE ratio was above 20. So this is real. In general, Again, higher CAPE values imply lower than average long-term annual market returns, okay? So if the CAPE value is high, greater than 20, we should be weary that the market will not continue blasting out 10-plus returns in the next coming decade. So when was the last time it was even below 20? Well, actually, that was way back in 2009. So at that time, that was the bottom of the market after the big financial collapse of 2008. And only then were stocks considered undervalued by Schiller's methodology. Indeed, if someone who was able to retire at that point, I don't know how you would have been, but some people probably did. Man, you enjoyed some really great years from a sequence of return standpoint because you retired and then the market kicked ass for like 10 years. That made your retirement look very solid. You could imagine a different scenario where someone would have pulled the trigger and then the market continued falling. That could really affect their long-term viability. So at that time, the CAPE ratio said, hey, future market returns looking pretty good. And indeed, they were. Let's do a brief tangent and actually talk about what sequence of return risk actually is. I think this is something people maybe, maybe don't really understand. So, you know, when I left my job in early 2020, I was a bit nervous. I was chewing my nails. You know, I'm staring at the clouds. I'm thinking of a CAPE ratio, which was around 30 at the time. You know, I wasn't using this variable flexible withdrawal strategy, which we still haven't explained yet, but I knew the CAPE ratio was high and I knew that was not good. And add to that, I looked up and the stock market is tanking, right? Beginning in February through March, the S&P 500 fell 30% in about a month, probably the fastest ever decline of that magnitude. And I wondered if I'd been really quite screwed. If I'd enjoyed very fortunate timing as an investor, as a saver, I was locking in year after year of these 10 plus percent returns only to now be very unlucky as a potential early retiree in that I was pulling the plug on my job and my income and this 
investment portfolio I was going to be living off was going to be eroding right during my most vulnerable period as an early retiree. Now, why are we most vulnerable? So we have to be mindful of these early years because of the compounding effect, right? Generally speaking, the first 10 years or so are indeed our most vulnerable in retirement. And that doesn't mean just for early retirees, that's anyone in retirement. If we over-withdraw on that portfolio early, we don't get the compounding. If, you know, we have this lower value that we're now trying to compound with market returns, and it just can't keep up with our spending. So whether that's due to market losses or just generally having no clue and just spending too much because you don't even know you shouldn't be, during those first 10 years, you can greatly increase the chances of premature asset depletion, which is not good. You do not want to mo- run out of money when you can't get a job anymore because you're old and no one wants to hire you because you can't do anything and you're not cognitively with it, you're not physically with it, that's a bad idea, right? (laughs) So this is otherwise known as a sequence of return risk. Whereas if you get early market returns, that's good. If you get early market drawdown, that's bad. We can understand that, right? So the more positive side of this, right? Like if we have these market gains that allow for a very low withdrawal percentages, because our our portfolio is growing faster than we can keep up with our spending, hopefully, unless we're just inflating our spending wildly and just throwing big old cocaine parties or something. That greatly increases the chance that we will leave this earth with many multiples of our initial retirement portfolio, whether or not we worked at all. So instead of worrying about running out of money, we might honestly be worrying about which building to put our name on, you know, or like how best to be philanthropic with our money or how to leave it to our family or something. That's honestly the more likely scenario. I mean, most of these modeling scenarios suggest that you'll not run out of money, but you'll actually end up with far more than you ever started with, even with a 60-year retirement horizon. So I don't want to sound too negative, but I am trying to caution. So here's the problem with the fixed withdrawal rates. You know, maybe it's our own scarcity mindset around money. You know, my wife and I, we always held an admittedly pessimistic belief on future returns. We just we're just conservative people like that. I mean, not, not politically conservative, but we're just fiscally conservative with our own money. And this was partly due to that CAPE ratio, which I've already discussed. It had been elevated for 12 plus years, and we had every reason to believe that the next 10 years would not be as fruitful as the previous 10 years. So as such, we saw the coveted 4% rule as a bare bones initial withdrawal rate. And we wanted to start with something lower in the range of 3.25%. You know, we built in a lot of spending flexibility as well as plans to immediately begin generating income. And indeed, after about 16 months away from her job, my wife did happily, I'll note, return to her part-time work. This wasn't something she did because we were running out of money or anything. She just wanted that, I don't know, structure in her life. So is this all overkill? Yeah, I mean, it's probably. But, um, you know, you only live once, right? And we didn't want to eat cat food one day. So why not do it right? But over time, I've become more interested in a flexible CAPE-based withdrawal strategy. And despite all this seemingly pessimistic, negative Nancy talk that I've been doing so far, this strategy actually allows for higher percentage withdrawals in bear markets. Now, why is that? Why could we withdraw more of a higher percentage of our portfolio when the market's down? Well, the CAPE-based approach accounts for the fact that the Equities are probably undervalued and primed for growth. So using evolving market fundamentals instead of just a fixed and naive withdrawal amount, we have more purchasing power in bear markets 
than we actually might think. So in other words, the 4% rule is likely too aggressive in overvalued markets. So when the CAPE is greater than 20, this is especially true when the S&P 500 is at all-time highs, i.e. late 2021. So again, according to Karsten over at Early Retirement Now, the most modeled failures of the 4% rule occur when the CAPE is greater than 20. Alternatively, however, in depressed market conditions like a bear market where the CAPE ratio falls below 20, the 4% rule is likely too conservative. So a retiree may be cutting his or her spending unnecessarily and strictly adhering to the 4% rule or really any flat rate. A 50% drop in the S&P 500 would require a 50% cut in spending. That sucks. You don't want that. Oof. Oof. (laughs) So using a flexible CAPE-based strategy, the retiree may be able to temporarily withdraw a significantly higher percentage of their portfolio, say in the range of 45 or even 5-plus percent temporarily. So... Spending might only need to drop by around 25 or 30% when the market's down 50, right? So you can live a little bit more comfortably and not worry about depleting your assets. So with this strategy, we are able to account for above average market returns that may soon sprout from this, you know, scorched earth that is the bear market. All right, well, let's get on with it, right? I mean, we've been talking for like 30 minutes beating around the bush about this CAPE-based withdrawal strategy. Let's, let's define what it is and get on with it. Let's do it. <laughs> so here's the equation. I mean, gosh, I don't know. You don't want equations on a podcast, do you? It's not a bad one. It's just some algebra. Maybe, you know, like, hmm. Yeah, do we want to do? Yeah, we'll do it. Okay, so the safe withdrawal rate equals A plus an imprint. No, let's not do it. Yeah, let's just head on over to the website <laughs> following the link in your show notes so you can look at this pretty simple equation. Basically, all we're doing is utilizing the inverse of the current CAPE ratio, one over the current CAPE ratio, multiplying it by a, um, a couple of variables, adding in a couple of variables here. And uh, what we can do then is calculate a new modified withdrawal rate based on the current market conditions. And so if we utilize the current CAPE ratio that Schiller has announced at 28, we actually end up with a, with a withdrawal rate at 3.54%. And you might say, ouch, you know, like I thought you said using this CAPE-based withdrawals method would allow for higher percentage withdrawals. And we're in a bear market and you're already telling me I still can't use the 4% rule. I still need to go something lower. You know, adherence of the 4% rule won't be too pleased to hear that this CAPE-based prediction would suggest a withdrawal of no higher than 3.54%, even in a bear market. Even more bad news, back in late 2021, the CAPE ratio was at 40, and that would suggest a withdrawal rate of no more than a measly 3%. That's really low. Now, one common complaint about the CAPE ratio is that it's been artificially elevated for years and is no longer as relevant. So in recent decades, a lot has changed regarding corporate tax environments, dividend payout structures, and even stock buyback programs, all of which can affect earnings per share. So as such, this has arguably resulted in a CAPE ratio that is overly pessimistic, and it has been that way for decades. So just last week, as I was cooking up this post, 
Karsten, again, over at Early Retirement Now, just straight out of the heavens, suggested his proposal for building a better CAPE ratio, and he actually modified Schiller's CAPE ratio. I don't know how much I want to go into this, but yeah, the issue was partly one of timeliness. So, for instance, earnings data that were used by Schiller were often lagging by at least three months. And then Karsten also made several other modifications that account for corporate tax rates, again, stock buybacks, et cetera. And of course, in uh, true-to-form fashion, he described all of this in very great detail. And I've got a link there in this post where you can see he's actually provided a Google Sheet, and he will be updating this regularly. So updating Schiller's cape to a more optimistic cape that seems legit, right? And so with Karsten's calculations, today's modified cape ratio is 20.9, down from the Schiller cape of 28 discussed above. So according to these modified figures, the market is now barely overvalued. Remember we said 20 is kind of the cutoff on what is considered a high CAPE ratio. So now if we use uh, Big Earn or Karsten's modified CAPE ratio, we get a calculated withdrawal rate of 4.14%. Now that sounds more like it, right? So in this bear market, we could actually be withdrawing more than 4% and that would be safe. You can actually withdraw more money than you would think and be temporarily at least safe. This is not a fixed withdrawal rate. It's going to be variable, right? We're going to maybe do this this little exercise every time we make a withdrawal. Maybe that's every month. Maybe that's three times a year, four times a year, whatever it looks like for you and your family. But I want to point out, however, even with Earn's more optimistic calculations, a safe withdrawal rate of 3.39 was the ceiling back in late 2021. So, for those of you who are real simple fire adherents and just ascribe to the 4% rule blindly, if you had retired in late 2021 and immediately started pulling 4% from your portfolio, you are already off to a kind of a bad start because this CAPE-based strategy would suggest that you should have been withdrawing no more than 3.39 because the market was considered significantly overvalued and primed to fall. So as such... A high CAPE environment, again, suggests a lower initial withdrawal rate, ideally less than 3.5%. And yes, the significant digits are indeed significant. A lot of people like, why does, you know, 3.25 versus 3.5 is such a small difference? It's not. It's a huge difference if you do the math. For instance, if you want to withdraw 4% and you're spending 40000 you need $1 million. If you want to withdraw 3.25%, you need $1.3 million. That's $300,000 difference of saving, okay? So just talking on a personal basis, you know, just for me and my wife, in this current environment with a 4.14% withdrawal rate, if we were to take a withdrawal today, that yearly total um, pretty significantly exceeds our yearly spending. So we're still in good shape, you know? We're in a down market that's approaching 30% down from its recent high. If you'd have told me two years ago when I quit my job or three years ago that I would be in a bear market with the market down 30% at this point in my quote unquote retirement, I would have been like, oh my goodness. But I found it very encouraging that if we use this CAPE-based strategy, our withdrawals still greatly exceed our spending. Now, of course, that's largely due to us oversaving again. And it was that, you know, one more year syndrome or whatever, I, you know, I don't know, but I sleep good at night. And Honestly, that's all that matters. And as a side note, I've been asked this before. When we were withdrawing our living expenses from our portfolio, and that was before my wife returned to work, because now her income uh, pretty much meets our yearly spending, 
we would withdraw kind of as needed every few months or so. Some people suggest withdrawing monthly and using this CAPE-based withdrawal strategy, you would just get a yearly sum, of course, and then simply divide that by 12 and make that monthly withdrawal of that amount. And then you do it again next month. And if, you, and if it's suggesting to withdraw more than you need, well, then withdraw less. I mean, no one's saying you got to spend more money than you want to. I just leave it in the market and let it continue compounding. And that's what we did. So, I mean, in 2021, we could have withdrawn far more than we needed to live off of. We could have thrown some parties or, I don't know, bought another car or something. But why? Well, like, that's just not who we are. So we left that money in the market for these rainy days, right? And now we're kind of in a rainy day. I've included in this post here on the website a theoretical portfolio and Kate-based withdrawal strategy starting in early 2020 when I left my job. These are not our portfolio numbers. It's just a theoretical example. And you can see how this differs if you use this Cape withdrawal strategy versus a fixed 4% on how much you could have withdrawn on any given year or month. And um, Carson also keeps his modified and evergreen Cape values Again, all this is linked from this original post, which you can follow in your show notes. So if this is kind of confusing and you're a visual learner like me and you want to see this in the spreadsheet, I really recommend heading there and hopefully this will click a little more. And I know many of you, if you've made it this far, are like, oh my God, this is all so confusing. Like why even bother? Why don't I just stay at my job and just do normal personal finance and just spend the majority of my money and one day I'll retire. This is not even worth the headache. And I get it. And I've been saying this for years, saving for retirement is significantly simpler than spending in retirement. I mean, who knew? <laughs> in what world would saving be simple and spending would be complicated, right? I mean, talk about the tables turning. For most people, saving is hard and spending is easy. But when we're talking about early retirement, it's actually kind of complicated. What a world. The good news is that many of you listening are probably not early retirees and you're just trying to understand. I, I was once in your shoes. I wasn't considering yet spending investment income, but I wanted to know how to do it when the time came. And that's good. You get to enjoy in this moment, in this bear market, the enhanced purchasing power where shares are currently on a 25% discount. I talked about that in last week's newsletter. And again, for those of you who are not subscribed, you're missing out. You're missing out. Link in show notes. <laughs> a bear market early in an investor's accumulation phase is surprisingly good news. I know it's hard to say that because usually that means there's recessions, people are suffering undoubtedly, but as an investor, I mean, we just have to be honest, that is good news. Well, so long as your income isn't adversely affected by a recession, right? I mean, it's assuming you don't lose your job or you're not furloughed or had your income cut. I mean, that happens, right? So for an early retiree, however, the opposite is true. That's why we need to be especially mindful of our withdrawal strategy, and it's important to understand this when the day comes for you. So again, if this all seems too complicated, here is my simplified advice. Number one, if you're interested in a true early retirement and you just need one number to start with, one number to aim for, I'd use an, an initial withdrawal rate of 3.25%. I know that is conservative. But, I mean, we're talking about your livelihood here. I mean, if, if you're really interested in retirement, do you really want to risk, you know, waking up in your 60s one day and realizing you need a lot more money than you're going to have? You don't want that. So, in other words, a retiree with an initial spending of $40,000 would need to save $1,300,000 and not the $1,000,000 even, as prescribed by the 4% rule, okay? Number two, again, I've already said this, don't retire. Don't do it. 
I'm telling you, it's not worth it for most people. Honestly, I think early retirement in its purest form, i.e. doing nothing and making no money, is a mistake for young people. And it's arguably a mistake even for traditional retirees. There's a lot of research on this. I believe a life of leisure is wasted human capital. Sorry, I just do. And as Peter Beal said on this podcast, he encouraged people to, you know, don't quit your job, find your job. Okay? So some version of financial independence, I would argue, can certainly facilitate us finding our job when we're not worried about the next paycheck. So I'm not saying don't pursue financial independence. Do it. It's power. It allows us to pursue the work that means the most to us when we're not worried about making that next paycheck, right? And number three, and I've talked about this a lot as well, I would really consider building a hybrid strategy that involves saving and working now. Like I know, we always want the best life, but build a nest egg with work that is compatible with your desired lifestyle that isn't necessarily your desired lifestyle. I would avoid the temptation to you know, do whimsical things like chasing our dreams, right? That was a mistake. 80s and 90s, there was a lot of talk about parents telling their children to chase your dreams and you know, follow your passions. We can't all do that. Most of us will never do that. And then we're left sad and angry because we think everyone out there has a dream job and we don't. That leads to discontent. What I would argue is to, to do work that is compatible with the things you love. And then as you save and invest and build a sizable nest egg, maybe not 30 times your annual spending, but some sort of middle ground, you can eventually transition to part-time or low-paying work that might actually be your dream. So that new income, or reduced income rather, when combined with an investment portfolio, optimizes your innate human capital and your desire to be part of something that matters. So you can utilize some investment income, you know, perhaps using this withdrawal strategy we've already discussed, and in tandem with your more modest income sources, your investment portfolio can, can grow and it can provide financial stability in your later years, right? And so you can pursue meaningful work now, kind of in midlife. It may not do anything more than just pay the bills, but your investment portfolio you built earlier in your career is now growing in the background. And when you get to a point when you actually want to retire or you can no longer work, you're not at risk from a financial standpoint, right? And so if you guys have any more questions on how that might look in finer detail, drop me some words, okay? Okay, let's try and summarize and bring this all together. Basically, what I'm trying to say is if you are interested in early retirement, and in particular, if you are interested in a very long retirement horizon, let's just say greater than 30 years, you really got to be weary of just using this fixed 4% withdrawal rate, the 4% rule. And I would instead recommend this CAPE-based flexible withdrawal strategy that actually acknowledges future, I hate to say predicted, but future anticipated market returns over long periods. So if we use this CAPE-based strategy, anything where a CAPE ratio is greater than 20, we should expect perhaps that the market will not be returning, just crushing year after year gains. Whereas it's less than 20, hey, we might be set up for a, another bull market run, in which case, again, we'll just let these equations dictate our safe withdrawal rate, and we are flexible with that from month to month. And again, I want to reiterate, if this is all kind of confusing and maybe a little overwhelming, just consider this something for someone who is really interested in a true early retirement. Will most people do that? I doubt it. So 
Anyway, the spreadsheet is there for you guys to play around with if you're visual learners and you can see more of what I'm talking about. So I hope that satisfies everything. Hope you guys have a great week and we will talk soon. I want to remind you or let you know for the first time that I write a weekly newsletter that has really become popular in recent months. I put a lot of things in there that aren't deserving of their own post online, such as books I'm reading, various articles as it relates to personal finance or life, sometimes some music, sometimes not. A little bit of everything that keeps you on your toes. It is not just a notification of new posts. You don't need that. I want to add some flavor. And so you can get that there each week. Head on over, put in your email over at clippingchains.com. It is free. You can unsubscribe at any time. All right, guys, I hope you have a fantastic week. See you next time.